Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are now in Truth Nuggets, number 15, and this is Lesson 9, our last lesson on the Lord's Prayer. And if you recall, as we've gone through these nine lessons, or the previous eight, in Hebrew, we would call the Lord's Prayer Hatafila Adonai, the prayer of the Lord. But he gave it to his disciples. Remember that in lesson one, that his disciples want to be like their rabbi. They want to pray like their rabbi. That's why Peter got out of the boat. He saw his rabbi walking on water. He wanted to be like Jesus. And he doubted, if you remember that in lesson one. So Jesus gives us a prayer that he probably was praying. He's teaching them how to pray. And so the Lord's Prayer becomes our prayer, the prayer of the disciples, Hatefila Talmudim. Now this last lesson on the Lord's Prayer, I've entitled, Pass, Fail. And we're going to focus in on the last phrase of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.13. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And going into Matthew 6, 13, where it says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now first, we're going to focus in on those words. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen, or amen in Hebrew. So I'm starting at the end of the phrase and working my way back. Now many of you, depending on the type of Bible you have, will find brackets around this phrase. The phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That means that in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, this phrase was not there. This implies it was not in the original written document of Matthew's gospel. One might say it's not in the Bible, but you say, wait a minute, it's in the Bible. How did it get in there if it was not in the original manuscripts? In the InterVarsity Press, Bible Backgrounds Commentary of the New Testament by Dr. Craig Keener. Boy, there's another book I highly recommend that many of you have. Matter of fact, both the commentary on the New Testament and the Old Testament, the IVP Bible Background Commentary, InterVarsity Press Bible, Bible Background Commentary by Dr. Craig Keener, and there is also one for the Old Testament. He's saying that this phrase at the end of the Lord's Prayer, even though it was not in the original manuscripts or the earliest manuscripts, it reflects Jewish prayer of Jesus' day. There was a practice among the Jewish people in their prayers of adding statements of praise and glory at the end. Matter of fact, this phrase is very, very similar to something in 1 Chronicles 29.11. Again, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty 
Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, you might say the kingdom, O Lord. So what we have is an idea that it might be that there was a Jewish disciple of Jesus later after Jesus has ascended. Maybe he was part of the 5,000 a little bit later on that we read in Acts. And he adds this phrase when he's copying Matthew's gospel. Now, we've already seen many times already in the previous eight lessons that the Lord's Prayer is a prayer coming out of Jesus' Jewish culture and customs. We saw that we, as a matter of fact, we saw that even with the first two words of the prayer, our Father. The Hebrews looked upon God as their Father. We see this, Moses is, is teaching them this, on the plains of Moab before they are going into the promised land in Deuteronomy 32.6, Isaiah 9.6, and then in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. So all the way from the Torah, all the way through the prophetic book of Malachi, God is their father. And over and over again, in all these lessons, we see how easily a religious Jew would relate to the Lord's prayer. So it isn't surprising that there's a possibility that a Jewish disciple of Jesus may have added this ending. Only for the simple reason this was something that they did when they actually created prayers, maybe even copying prayers. Now this seems likely because there is a document, perhaps written prior to 70 AD. Others argue that it was probably late 1st century, early 2nd century. Some people call it the Dadachi. That's how some of you, and all of us, would, would pronounce it in English. And it's actually in Greek, uh, Didache or Didache. The Didache or Dadachi, as some of you might say, I, I've said it many times like that. It's a document, and it's related not only to the early church, but very, very clearly early to the early Jewish Christians. And the reason being is there's so many examples in the Didache that relate to Jewish practices in the synagogue and Jewish life in Jesus' day. Like, for instance, it talks about in, in the Didache about praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Well, that's exactly what Jewish people did they had their prayers three times a day. So it could very well be that there's a Jewish writer here writing to the decay or others that are writing it as well. And what they're doing is to say, hey, listen, we're doing the daily prayers three times a day. We've talked about this earlier in one of the eight lessons here in this series. So the thing is, is that this writer saying, along with those daily prayers, let's do the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer uh, in Didache, it's in Didache chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And it's very interesting because when you read it in Didache chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it's like reading Matthew right from the New American Standard, except it ends with this phrase. Here's the quote. For yours is the power and glory forever. The ending that's not in the earliest manuscripts. We have earlier manuscripts on Matthew's Gospel that are dated prior to 
the um, um, end of the first century and prior to the, the publication of the Didache. So it really seems possible that a Jewish Christian added a typical Jewish ending to the prayer. For me, I have no problems with it. I'm not bothered that this is, wasn't in the original manuscripts. I just think about that ending phrase, and it's just such a wonderful way, positive way, to end this awesome prayer that Jesus gave to us. Indeed, his is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever. It reminds us again that the prayer is so connected to our Jewish roots. Now, from that phrase, we go to the next phrase. But deliver us from evil. Now, for a Jew, this phrase, deliver us from evil, again, would be very familiar in Jesus' day. In those days of the early first century A.D. Because they had prayers about seeking God, seeking God's protection from evil and the devil. Just consider Psalm 141, verses 3 through 4. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. Keep me, O Lord God, from all evil. This even implies the devil, the evil one. Thus, again, Jesus' disciples easily understand the phrase, deliver us from evil. Matter of fact, when we take a look at the New American Standard um, and a couple of other modern Christian translations, you will say, but deliver us from evil. There's others that will say, deliver us from the evil one. Very interesting. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day, this was just part of their religious culture. They depended upon their father to keep them out of the hands of the evil one. To keep them away from the attack of the devil, from the attack of Hasatan, the adversary. And this, this is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think uh, Dr. Brad Young, in his article on the Lord's Prayer, and if you have listened to sessions one through eight, you know that in the descriptions on the sessions at Podbean, at, at the, the website, I've given you a link to Dr. Young's article that's at Jerusalem Perspective. And so I thank him because he made this reference in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we read, Al Tashlit be Satan Do not let Satan gain control over me. So it's just so part of that culture. Deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one. But now we come to the phrase in Matthew 6.13 that is very troublesome. And the phrase is, and do not lead us into temptation. And some of us might say, huh? Will God 
lead us into into temptation? Will he put us in situations where we could sin? Where we would commit an act of evil, an act of wickedness? Now in Psalm 121, verses 7 through 8, you can check this out. And it's, God protects us from all evil. All evil. If that's true, then why would God lead us into a situation where we might be tempted to do evil when God protects us from all evil? Why would he lead us into a situation where we may be tempted to do an evil act? If God leads us into situations we are, where we are tempted, this means verses like 1 Timothy 2.4. In 1 Timothy 2.4, it says that God wants all people to be saved. And yet, he's going to lead us into temptation where we might commit an act of evil or wickedness and lose our salvation. This doesn't make sense. 2 Peter 3.9, God wants no one to perish. So this phrase, lead us not into temptation, is bothersome. To me, I see it as a phrase that's going against so many concepts about who God is, about his care and his love, and that he wants all men to be saved. It's like in John 3.16. If God leads us into temptation, then in John 3.16 we might say, yep, God loves us. He, got, he, he loves the whole world. He gave us his only son that all of us will be saved. But surprise, he's going to put us in situations where we might sin. This makes no sense. Paul teaches... In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God helps us when we're tempted. He helps us get out of it. Well, he helps us by providing a way out of it. So why would he bring us into temptation? It may have something to do with the fact that this has been translated from the Hebrew into the Greek and the Greek into the English and we're stuck on the word temptation. Is there something perhaps in the Greek and maybe even the Hebrew we need to take a look at? Now, before we do that, in Genesis 6-5 and in Genesis 8-21, matter of fact, I invite you to take a look at those verses. Genesis 6, 5 is before the flood. Genesis 8, 21 is after the flood. And in both of these verses, God says the hearts of all of us are inclined to do evil and wickedness continually. Before the flood and after the flood. There's only one solution to this issue, and that's the cross. We're weak when we're sinners. So we have this phrase, Lord God, lead us not into temptation. What's going on? Because in English, this definitely comes against Bible verses about the truth of who God is. 
Let's analyze this a little bit more deeper. The word temptation translates a Greek word which is pyrasmas. Pyrasmas. Its Strong's number is G3986. And from Thayer's Greek lexicon, pyrasmas can mean a trial to prove. In other words, proving something by testing it. It can be adversity. It can be affliction. It can be just a trial. It can be a test. Now, Jesus spoke Hebrew, and he did not speak Aramaic. By the way, I did have someone actually uh, contact me because they read that phrase that Jesus, that, that I wrote that phrase in there, or said the phrase in one of the podcasts that Jesus spoke Hebrew. And he was fairly upset. Well, he, he wasn't upset. Uh, let's just put it this way. He disagreed with me. And what I did is I gave him many links that Bible historians like myself have seen quite clearly that Jesus spoke Hebrew, probably spoke Aramaic as well. We have proof from the history from the archaeology, that the spoken language in Jesus' day was Hebrew. I have a link, again, at the website in this session. So if you go to the website, www.lightamenorah.org, menorah, again, is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H, www.lightamenorah.org, and you look up Truth Nugget 15, Lesson 9 on the Lord's Prayer, in the description below the picture of Pass Fail. I have a link there to an article by Samuel Shafrai at Jerusalem Perspective. And again, he goes into a lengthy scholarly discussion about the fact of the spoken languages in Jesus' day and the fact that unequivocally that indeed Jesus spoke Hebrew. It hasn't caught up to the churches yet. Normally in Bible history and Bible archaeology, uh, the things that we're uh, finding, we're exploring, we're coming up with in Bible history and archaeology doesn't hit the churches for years, years later. So he used the Hebrew word for pyrasmas. Pyrasmas is the Greek word and Jesus probably used the word, more than likely, Masa. And its Strong's number is H4531. Now, I mentioned this before. Each Hebrew word always has a root. I'm not going to try to give you a Hebrew lesson here. But the root for Masa has a very interesting picture. It always gives you a picture. And the picture is a smell. So in other words, it, it, the, the Hebrew is trying to give you the conceptual idea that there's a smell here. Um, the smell test, you might say, because masa means a trial or a test. A smell test. So in Hebrew, the phrase that we're actually studying, and lead us not into temptation, in the Hebrew would be, and lead us not into a trial or a test. Lead us not into a trial that proves something or a smell test. In other words, testing us to see if we're real. 
Now, for Jesus' disciples, who are deeply ingrained in Second Temple Judaism, they understood one thing quite clearly. The Bible, and remember, the only Bible they had at that time was the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the foundational books of the Bible in those days was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So, in the Torah, and we're just going to take a look at a few verses on this, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 8.2. And again, reading from the New American Standard Version, we read, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what's in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, what's in your heart? Heart is a word in Hebrew used as a picture for the mind. So it's really testing to see what is in your mind. Remember we read, or I referenced you to Genesis 6-5 and 8-21, where it talks about the inclination of the heart of us, our hearts. And so it's a Hebrew way of mentioning our mind. So again, what's in our mind? The inclination to sin comes from our mind. And again, the Hebrew is heart. You go to Psalm 11, verse 5. It says, God tests the righteous and the wicked. All the righteous, all the wicked. Jeremiah 17, 10, God tests each of us. He tests all men. Now James, Jesus' brother, he gives us a reason that our Father would test us. Let's go to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So why does God test us? He is trying to create in us an endurance of our faith. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now the word perfect, or the English word perfect, actually translates a Greek word that actually means a grown-up disciple, a mature disciple, not a child anymore. So when we look at this, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be a grown-up disciple, a mature disciple, complete lacking nothing, not a child anymore. So in Jesus' day, the, and these are just a few verses. This is all over the place. The disciples had this ingrained in them. But we know, as they did, that we're weak and that we fail. We are prey to the evil one. We fall to temptation. But we know that God is strong. Where we are weak, God is strong. This is 2 Corinthians 13, 9. And we don't want to fail this test. We know it's coming. God in his Bible says it's coming. Verified even by James, Jesus' brother, who was second in command of the early church after Jesus ascends. We want to pass the test. Dr. Brad Young, in that article on the Lord's Prayer that I've linked you in previous sessions, 
from Jerusalem per perspective. He suggests that the phrase, and lead us not into temptation, should actually be translated this way. Veol tevienu lidi niseon ela. English, do not put us in a test or a trial that is more than we could withstand. The trials of the Lord must come. The trials of the Lord will come. They're promised. And you take a look at many verses in terms of God's testing. They're to refine us like gold. To create in us a godly character. And just like we read in James, for us to be complete as grown-up disciples. And we know ourselves. We know we're weak. We know we're sinners. Genesis 6-5 and Genesis 8-21, one verse before the flood, one verse after. All of us, our hearts, in actuality, remember in Hebrew, hearts means minds. Jesus even said that the heart is where all evil comes from, which he meant is the mind. That's the Hebrew concept. So all of us, our minds, we have an inclination in our minds to sin continually. So indeed, we need to seek our Father's help. Psalm 121. We come to the Lord and ask Him to guard our entire lives as we go in and we go out. And we think about Dr. Brad Young's retranslation of that phrase where he says, Do not put us in a trial, O Father. Do not put us into your testing that is more than we can handle. We look to you, our Father, our Abba, to help us make it, to help us pass and not fail. Shalom. So we're finally done <clears throat> with the entire podcast series on the Lord's Prayer. And as a final link, here at the website, I've linked you to a document which is a translation of the Lord's Prayer based upon Dr. Brad Young's work and Dr. David Flusser at Hebrew University, both in Hebrew with the transliteration and also the English. And you can find that again here at the website in the description of the series. So indeed, I hope this podcast series has helped you go deeper in understanding the Lord's Prayer and may it be a prayer that is a sign between you and Jesus that you want to be his disciple, that you want to be just like him. Shalom. Shalom.